Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary. You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Check out my new show, Nicola Talent Presents Getting Away With Murder. Live at Liberty Hall on September 20th. Brought to you by MCD. Tickets on sale at ticketmaster.ie. Baby Carrie was, um, and is to this day, sadly, an unsolved murder of a newborn baby. This was an act of violence. This was very personal. This was a deliberate and, and, and determined effort. And it's one off very small number of cases which I think I will take to my grave thinking you know I wonder if that that matter will will ever be solved it haunts me I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World a podcast about criminals drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe his career has seen him head up investigations into terrorism corruption human trafficking drugs and even homicide. Roy McComb has had a decorated career, but still he recalls one case that haunts him today. When a newborn baby girl was found dumped in a plastic bag in his hometown of Carrie Duff in County Down on March 26, 2002, Roy became the lead detective and named the child Baby Carrie. Forensics would later determine that she had been stabbed 11 times, that her head was crushed and that she had been buried elsewhere before the discovery, which led to a massive murder probe. But despite all attempts to find out who baby Carrie was or where she'd come from, the case remains unsolved. Today, I'm talking to Roy about the brutality of the crime, about the twists and turns of the investigation and about his hopes that it will one day be solved by advances in DNA or a witness finally coming forward. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Roy, tell me a little bit about your career, um, where it's brought you and what you're, what you're doing now generally. Um, so I, I joined the police in 1984 uh, in Northern Ireland, I joined the RUC, served from uh, 84 through to 2014. I uh, was there when they, the RUC became PSNI. I uh, was fortunate enough to 
work in different parts of the, the country, worked uh, uniform duties for a large part of it. But actually, the majority of my time was spent doing uh, investigative detective work and uh, senior investigating officer leading homicide investigations, doing uh, terrorism, organized crime. And my last days were as the head of organized crime for uh, for PSNI, and I had responsibility for everything that touched the sides of of organized crime in Northern Ireland, including the, the cross-border elements uh, with Angarda Shikona, working with colleagues in, in Britain. And then from uh, 2014, I joined the National Crime Agency, which was only about a year old at that point. So uh, I was fortunate to be in at the very beginning. Um, I'd actually been part of the, the design and development program for the agency when it was being when it was being set up the year before in 2013. So I went there in 2014, served as a deputy director until the summer of 2019. Um, and I had national responsibilities for organized crime threats, so drugs, firearms, um, human trafficking, modern slavery. And I also led a number of, of uh, major investigations within the agencies, such as the um, the child sexual investigation in uh, in Sheffield around Rotherham, which was the larger is the largest child abuse investigation ever conducted in the UK. It, it, it began with uh, a suspected fourteen hundred victims, and in fact, the number is now beyond fifteen hundred victims. So, just a huge investigation with every type of complexity you can imagine, but also did the investigation into allegations of police corruption around the Stephen Lawrence murder, uh, which happened in, in London in 93, uh, and a number of other things which were for the most part covert. Finished the National Crime Agency in the uh, the summer of 2019 and then moved into sort of international private consultancy work uh, around organised crime and, uh, and um, criminal justice matters. So um, an interesting sort of couple of years. That's some career and uh, no doubt within it, even those few cases you've mentioned, um, a story, each of them a story in itself, I've no doubt will be coming back to you. We've had a conversation before we come on here, which uh, has piqued my interest, but we, we will come back to it another day. Uh, in relation to organised crime, but um, yeah, I mean that's some career. You've seen it all. You've you've got a really wide, vast view on organised crime, not just from the local position, but sort of bringing that into that trans-global that we talk about with the with the Kinahan organisation and others. Um, but I want to bring you back to twenty years ago for our purposes today about uh, a murder, a cold case murder. Now unsolved, unusual, and one that has probably stayed with you to this day. Um, tell me about Baby Carrie. Well, Baby Carrie, uh, as you've mentioned, Nick, one of the, the privileges of working in, in the world of investigating crime is you get to be involved in, in the most difficult, the most challenging. And um, it was almost, I always thought it to be a tremendous honour and a privilege to be the person responsible for leading an investigation into the death of another human being. I don't think it gets any more serious or any more uh, important in any investigative world. So if you're if you're a police officer, then that to me is always the epitome, the, the height of importance. And, and Baby Carrie was, and, and is to this day, sadly, an unsolved murder of a newborn baby. Um, and it's one of probably a very small number of cases which 
I think I will take to my grave thinking, you know, I wonder if that that matter will will ever be solved because um, it, it haunts me because the circumstances were such that we had a we had a telephone call at the end of March of 2002, a couple of young kids in their, you know, eight, nine years of age walking through uh, just a public pathway at the rear of a um, uh, a sports facility in the village of Carry Duff, which is just south of Belfast, and and coincidentally it was my hometown when I when I grew up. So actually, I used to play football and mess around in the same fields that these kids were were walking. So in the in the afternoon of of, of March at the end of two thousand two, uh, they they were walking along and these kids do kicking around and poking things in bushes, and they came across a um, a bin bag just lying in the hedge and it looked like there was something inside it and when they pulled it out of the out of the ditch when they opened it up they found the body of a newborn baby and when i say newborn uh baby carrie was still had her umbilical cord attached to her so i mean was quite literally uh newborn and was murdered so the investigation from 2002 onwards was around you know first of all who is this little baby um the difference in, in this investigation and virtually every other investigation is almost immediately when someone is murdered, you know who they are. There's always somebody who quickly comes forward and said, you know, the person killed is my son, brother, husband, sister, wife, whatever. And that gives you what we call victimology. You begin to pick up, well, who is this person? Because that helps you identify uh, how they came to meet their death. Because invariably people are killed by someone who's in their circle of acquaintances or family or whatever. So knowing who they are gives you an immediate opportunity to identify possible lines of inquiry. But we didn't have that. So we had a newborn unidentified baby with absolutely no uh, understanding of, of who she was or where she came from. Uh, and I think what we wanted to do very quickly was to personalize her. Uh, so unlike every other victim who quickly had a name for the public to understand, this little baby had nobody. So we thought we need to give her a name. And because she was found and carried off, uh, we called her Baby Carrie. And, and that name to this day, and I think 20 plus years later, you say that to some people and they can very quickly find out who that is, even if they don't remember. So I think we succeeded in making sure that she wouldn't be forgotten by giving her a, a form of identity. But um here we are 20 years later, you know, do I really know who baby Carrie is? No, I don't. I mean, I've left the police some years now. I know that there's some work still being done by, by the police service, but you know, they, they still to this point still don't know who baby Carrie is. So the circumstances of her death, the discovery of her body, where she had been in between times was all part of the investigation. And it revealed, uh, you know, some really very, traumatic events. So dark secrets, Roy, I imagine, are around the the discovery of a baby in those circumstances. Clearly, when you don't have an identity and the baby's so newborn a few days old, your first port of call is to look for a pregnant mother no longer pregnant with no baby. And and, and that's where, where it became even more interesting because this is March, this is the end of March still the sort of the beginning of, of springtime and of wintertime, we were we were trying to identify somebody who had carried a baby full term. But the difficulty for us was 
that baby Carrie wasn't just abandoned in a bin bag in that spot. She had been born and she had been buried somewhere because she was surrounded by a layer of soil. So we, we then had effectively a disposal site where her body had been found. We also had a, um, a deposition site where her body had been buried and at some point and for some reason removed. So we, you know, we were having to work out quite broadly, when could she have been born? When could she have been buried? When she, could she have been sort of dug up and, and then moved? So all of those were very vague, which just makes the, the investigation even more challenging. Um, you know, she began to hypothesize, look, you know, why would someone murder what was a full term and otherwise healthy baby? You know, she had, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes, you know, functioning, uh, functioning limbs, lungs, bodily organs, everything about her. We could tell from the, the pathology that she had breathed, but that almost immediately she had been she had been murdered. Um, and she'd been murdered in, not that there's any nice way of murdering anybody, but, you know, she had been stabbed 11 times in, in, in quite sort of tentative ways. I think only one of the stab wounds penetrated her sort of inner, inner skin. So that wasn't the cause of death. The cause of death was when someone, I think, effectively picked her up by the ankles and, and bashed her head against a, a flat surface. And, and you know, it's quite difficult. You, you think you've been through a lot as a senior detective and you've seen kind of all things that people are willing to do to each other. But trying to imagine what happened that somebody thought that murdering just the most innocent of victims is, is just so difficult to, to, to rationalize and to do it in such a barbaric manner that there was no there was no dignity, there was no decency, there was no attempt to be, if I can use the word kind in these circumstances, you know, to bash a little baby's head against a uh, the ground or a flat surface was just horrific. What was your your immediate instincts in that? I mean, you're talking about probably an overkill for a child so so young, um, and you know the general, I suppose, thought process would be a mother, even if they kill their babies, they do so sometimes in more gentle fashion, in suffocation and drowning or whatever. Um, that violence seems to be. Would, would suggest maybe some hatred towards the child. And, and that's, it certainly formed part of our thinking, the sort of hypotheses we had was, we start with, look, this is an unwanted baby. Question, why was this unwanted? Was this because of, you know, from the simplistic, you know, an unwanted pregnancy for a family that just couldn't deal with another baby? Yet then that begs the question, well, why not do all the other options of, you know, why carry a baby full term? You know, was this something 2002 when abortion wasn't an option? Um, they couldn't travel over again, abortion, local facilities weren't an option. Was it something more insidious? You know, was it an incestuous relationship? Was it a, a, a rape victim? All of those things were, were playing into our mind and all of those open up options for us to try to explore. Uh, so, we, you know, we knew that this was really um, an unwanted baby uh, and, and we were trying to figure out, well, why would that be? And, and you then have to figure out, well, somebody managed to conceal a baby because your point is, is absolutely how we thought. How do you carry a pregnancy full term? And at some point, then neighbours don't say to you, you know, what, 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 where's your baby? You know, you're, you're no longer pregnant. You know, and, and we were, we were asking people um, all those questions around the neighbour. I think we, we, we conducted a a canvas of all the, the neighbourhood of Carrie Duff. We spoke to several thousand people. 
we ultimately did a um, what was then the largest DNA screening process in Northern Ireland. I think we recovered something like 11 or 1300 samples of people uh, in the carried off community, um, all in an attempt to find mum. And, and we were very careful to say, look, your, your point again is, you know, mothers and children, whilst there is a history of some women being, you know, cruel to their own children, of course there are. But there was something about this that suggested that there was another pair of hands involved. And we used that language very carefully that we knew because of the pathology, the circumstances that that little baby Carol had been born and just within a few moments of life had been killed. And thinking through the, the kind of physical environment that a mother would be in immediately after giving birth, we asked, well, is it possible that a mother having given birth on their own could do this 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 brutal act, and we we can't say absolutely not, but we 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 thought more likely that there was another pair of hands that played a role, and then of course we didn't know whether that was a male or female. Um, it tended to be that the the level of violence suggested more of a male person having played a role because, as you've said, you know a woman killing their own children tend to be, and it's. Strange to talk about that kindness of it, but they tend to be a little bit more um, dignified, that suffocation, drowning, almost medication. This was an act of violence. This was very personal. This was to the head. This was um, a deliberate and, and, and determined effort, which suggested um, without absolute confidence that it could have been a, you know, a man involved, which, again, we think, well, is that boyfriend, husband, lover, father, grandfather? We, you know, we, we we simply had so many options to try to tie down. I mean, it was interesting when we we did the house to house inquiries, and and we were asking those questions that that you have suggested. You know, who who do you know in your neighbourhood who was pregnant? But this would have been a pregnancy over the 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 winter time of two thousand and one, and of course people are dressed accordingly. They've got heavy jackets on, sweaters. They stay indoors more. And there was a point when we were knocking on someone's door and we said, look, do you know anybody in your community who uh, has been pregnant? And we said, no, 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 I, you know, I keep to myself. I don't know anybody. And at the point we were speaking, the next door neighbor walked out and not being disrespectful, could not have been any more pregnant, you know, and could not have been obvious as pregnant. Uh, and yet we, we had to point out and say, look, you know, literally your next door neighbor is obviously pregnant. And, and the person we were speaking to said, look, I keep myself to myself. I come in, I close my door, I close my curtains. I don't pay any attention to anybody and I don't know what goes on. And that's always the challenge in, in any crime investigation, but particularly this one where you're not asking someone, did they see something suspicious or something that might have led to you know, an act of terrorism or, or something else? You're asking, did you see anybody who was pregnant? And, uh, you know, that's a that's a different set of questions and it provoked a different set of responses. And particularly, as you say, when somebody is more than likely trying to conceal that pregnancy, I mean, women can, especially younger women, I think. Um, what strikes me about this case is, and I want to go back to you about the movement of the body uh, from possibly, I think it's been mentioned, a gardener flower bed to this area called Duck Lane. But before we get to that, uh, I mean... The thing that strikes me, Roy, is this happened in 2002, not the 1970s, not the 1960s. So obviously in in the Republic, 
two cases, maybe. I don't know whether you leaned on them or you looked towards them. But uh, in the 1970s, there was a body of a baby found in similar enough circumstances in Dunleary in County Dublin, stabbed to death, um, a bit of a frenzied overkill situation and dumped in a bag. Um, the perpetrator never identified in recent years. The police here, the Gardaí, have recognised um, the 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 woman who came forward in, in the 1990s and said she was the, the mother of that child. She has said she was the subject of incest in the family home and had given birth as a, as a young child herself, as an 11-year-old. Um, the other case, obviously, is the Kerry Babies case, which I'm sure you've heard of. Child washed up on a shore, found dumped again. Um, a mystery as to who this child is and where this child came from. But 2002 is, um, it just seems like it should have been a different era, that this shouldn't have happened again. That, I mean, even from the point of view of, you know, we have CCTV cameras, people's movements are I mean, we have phones, we have some phone use, certainly around then. And it just seems amazing that it could happen in such modern times. And, and, and you're right. And we, you know, we we tried all of the avenues that you, you've talked about. We did a lot of research. The uh, the predecessor to the National Crime Agency, where, where I worked and, and still has this capability, but it had a, um, a database uh, called the Catchem database, uh, and it's an acronym, as you would imagine police officers did have in those days, uh, the Catchem database, and it correlated all of the deaths of, of children particularly, and, and was able to identify patterns and the likelihood percentages of, of, you know, how quickly somebody could would be killed if they were abducted, and, you know, the likelihood of this set of circumstances leading to this type of murder. And, and we, we trolled through all of that. And there were so few examples of cases where a newborn baby was killed and, and not on, on its own, but actually the circumstances that we had of newborn, stabbed, buried, her, you know, her head bashed in. That was such an unusual event that it probably stands out to this day. Now, that's only, of course, the information of the bodies and the babies that you know about. That's the ones that you don't know about could be equally as important. Uh, but I know that we did, uh, you know, we passed a lot of research around uh, basically across the islands, across Ireland, across Britain, to find as much information as we could. And in fact, um, I think about a year earlier, there had been a very similar case in the North Down Coast area around the, the Strangford Coast in Newton Ards where a little baby boy had been found in very, very similar circumstances. So, you know, within a year we had we had two babies being found that had been killed. And, um, you know, we, we we looked at that investigation to see if there's any possible leak. And in fact, no, no more than, I think, two or three years ago, there was a case in Northern Ireland where, um, you know, there was a, a woman charged with murdering her, her children or murdering one of her two children, trying to murder her second. And I raised that with my, you know, my former colleagues in Pace and I just to do a little bit of a health check to see if there was any possible connections between uh, baby Carrie and that case, because stabbing a baby is itself quite an unusual event. You know, we had, um, I mean, in all investigations, there's that sort of peaks and troughs of, you know, you think you're you're making progress and then suddenly you're back at that sort of square one. Um, I mean, there was there was something particular around the 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 soil that was around baby Carrie that gave us a forensic opportunity to to consider, and um, 
you know, we, we followed that. And there was one particular young girl who was teenager, was a high flyer in school. And then at the point when, you know, Christmas time, 2001, um, baby Carrie's mother would have been carrying her and would have been quite obvious probably uh, this young girl dropped out of school and all those indicators began to say, well, you know, she's at the right age. She was a high flyer. Everybody thought that she dropped out and her grades and her performance just dropped off the scale. And everybody was saying, well, we think that she was pregnant. She was wearing these heavy jackets and big sweaters. And everybody, all of her friends said she's dropped off out of contact. We think she's pregnant and she's trying to conceal it. And when we identified who she was and where she lived, she lived close to an area where the particular forensic opportunities that we were trying to match also existed. So we thought, well, you know, has she given birth at home, gone across the street, buried the body, and then at some point moved, you know, baby Carrie's body up to where she was ultimately found. And, you know, you get quite excited about that because the everything just seemed to be lining up. And when we did the, the follow-on DNA inquiries and the interviews, it was entirely unconnected, which, you know, is always disappointing, but at least you've proven that you can run through the, you know, the lines of inquiry. But And you're not going to waste years chasing what ultimately would end up being a false lead because that can really be very wasteful in investigations, of course. Yeah, and, and um, you know, it, it tested the forensic experience because we were, we were relying on people to do really quite novel forensic tests on things because the traditional... You know, if you have a DNA sample that's found at a scene of a crime, you know, you're trying to match the scene, the, the sample from the scene to a person. In baby Carrie, what you're trying to do is take the DNA of the person and divide that 50% male, 50% female, and then do a match against someone. So you're not, you're not doing a like-for-like like comparison. So, uh, you know, at the point that I left the police service, we, we didn't have the means by which... Uh, um, an unidentified body could be matched to a single male as the father or a single female as the mother. So you were only you were only ever getting, um, I think the language is, you know, could not be excluded. So you were getting this list of people who, because they showed a partial match of their female or male DNA, they could not be excluded as either the male, the, the mother or the father. And, and, you know, you're not getting the absolute perfect example from a crime scene that matches another person because it's, you know, it's a, it's a 50, 50 match you're trying to find. And all of that became even more challenging. We had to use lots of other techniques to try and, you know, squeeze out evidential leads. Um, uh, but the, uh, I suppose the, it is one of those cases that, that stays with you because you constantly think, you know, did I miss anything or the things I could have done differently? Because unlike a, a you know, any other murder where there is a family that is rightfully asking for justice, rightfully pursuing the police and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? This wasn't that, you know, there was nobody. And apart from mm-hmm. the sort of self-generated publicity that we were trying to do, um, we, the police effectively became surrogates for baby Carrie and we were driving our, ourselves forward because there wasn't that public demand uh, because there was no victim's family coming forward and saying, you know, we want you to find justice because, you know, obviously within the family, there were lots of questions that would have been asked. Um, mm. You know, so we did things like, uh, you know, we, 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 we never put her, her, her little body on display. That would be, that would be inappropriate, but, you know, we made artist drawings. We did computer drawings. We did computer aging. Um, we took forward, you know, what she would look like a year later, 
uh, we tried to appeal to, you know, to mom to say, look, we, we um, to this day, the police have never accused the mother of being involved in the murder. Now, does the mom have a story to tell? Of course she does, because the circumstances were such that she would have been most likely present when baby Carrie was killed. We just don't know what those circumstances were. So we were very careful to say, you know, we want to hear what you have to say. And ultimately, this is your daughter. Uh, we've given her a name, but that's probably not the name you would have chosen. So you know, we did our level best to try and make it possible for mom to feel able to come forward. But uh, that was always going to be a challenge. Mm. The moving of the body is somewhat unusual. Um did you, you obviously don't know where that first crime scene essentially was, which it would be a crime scene if you found it, the garden, the flower bed, whatever. Um, the body was moved, you can only imagine, as a, a measure of caution by the killer that this, wherever the body had first been dumped, might have been easier to find. Um, what was your own thoughts on that? And If, if this was... Um... This this was probably a, a deposition site, a burial site that was immediately available to the people who, or the person who, who, who killed little baby Carrie. And that's likely to be something like a, a flower bed, a garden, somewhere within close proximity and immediate access to someone, um, you know, and someone out digging in their own flower bed, never going to draw attention. You know, you could, you, you know, you could do, you could bury, bury treasure in your own garden and no one's going to see it because it's your garden, you're digging, you could be planting daffodils for all, you know. And, and so it's the obvious and it's the immediate where people think, I'm going to bury this body because we just need to get rid of her. And then the sort of cold logic kicks in to say, mm, you know, you, you can never exclude a dog coming along and digging up a flower bed. You can never exclude workers coming along and digging up a, a, your garden because they need access to a water pipe or whatever circumstance. And the last thing you want is to have a dead body on your land, um, particularly one that could be tied to you forensically. So I think at some point, they, the person who did this thought, we really need to move this body. And then you get into, well, why then the deposition site and in, 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 in Duck Walk and in, in Carrie Duff? And our reasoning was, look, because I happened to, you know, I grew up there as a child, it's not a place that, that you know unless you've probably lived in and around Carrie Duff. So it's probably someone who has personal knowledge or personal experience. I don't live in Carrie Duff, but I could take you to it now. So you could never rule out that someone who lives far, far, far away went back to this site. But you have to play the odds in an investigation. And somebody moved this little body put her into a bin bag and thought, where can I take her to that I can get access to, that no one's going to see me walking. It's not going to stand out me walking along carrying a bag. And so it was probable that somebody walked along there carrying a sports bag, inside of which was the bin bag carrying the little baby's body. And where they went to was an area that was beyond the CCTV range of the of the, of the sports centre. And, you know, person walking along, during the day at nighttime with a sports bag in the direction of or from the direction of a, of a sports centre. It's never going to draw attention to anybody. And, and then it's as simple as, you know, opening up the bag, dropping a bag of what could be rubbish, in this case a baby, into a ditch and walking on. Easy, easy as done. So probably somebody who, you know, immediately buried the body within their control, probably their own garden, but can't be absolutely certain. 
uh, and then uh, at some point thought, this is too close for comfort. Where can I take this to? And they happened to know this particular area of carried off because, you know, it was a public pathway, but it's beyond the, the range of neighbours watching and uh, certainly beyond the range of CCTV. So, you know, there were elements of that that suggested somebody within the carried off community had, had you know, a little bit of prior knowledge. Um, but actually carried off as a, you know, as a village, as a little small town these days, several thousand people live in it. So, you know, your odds are better than in a big city, but they're not particularly good. The forensics and through soil sampling, were they able to tell you that the baby the first time had been buried without the plastic bag and had then been put into the plastic bag when she was dug up? Yeah, so she they, they, they were able to confidently say, look, she had been born, she had been, she'd been able to draw breath, the lungs had expanded, you know, there was there was forensic pathological evidence to say that she had she had lived independent of mum. She still had the umbilical cord attached, but it was then severed in a very roughened fashion. It wasn't, you know, well, it certainly wasn't a surgical cut, but it was still attached. Um, and then the body had been, you know, she'd been stabbed. Uh, first, she'd been stabbed like 11 times, and then her head had been had been stove in. Um, she'd been buried because the the the, the soil and the, the the material around her was still present. When she was dug up, it was in her, you know, her ears, her mouth, you know, around her fingers and all of that. Um, and, and when you examine the clothing, you know, the soil, it, it gives off a, there's, there's a sort of a, I hesitate to say an individual fingerprint, but the soil in your garden will be different than the soil in my garden because, you know, we live in different parts of the world. Uh, and that gives you opportunities. It's not, it's not an, uh, it's not an easy science, but you know, we called upon the you know the best people that we could reach to say, help us understand where this was likely to be. So you know, you get particular uh, sort of seeds and spores that come off plants and, and trees, which begins to give you an idea of where it's possible that it could have been. Uh, so, for instance, there was a bit of a false lead at one point to say that you know, baby Carrie was never buried in Northern Ireland. In fact, wasn't even buried on the island of Ireland because um, some of the soil contained evidence of uh, the spruce tree. And somebody had suggested to the scientist, there's no evidence of spruce. Spruce has long since died out in the island of Ireland and had to point out that there was a big shopping centre in Lisbon called Spruce Field. And, and there was a particular reason why it was called Spruce Field. So they had to rethink their, their, their decision-making at that point. Um, but you know that's where you have to be careful as an investigator because scientists are looking at things in a, a very, very particular, very narrow focus. But that particular account could have misled us to the point of suggesting, and this seems even bizarre to think about it, that that baby Carrie was buried in Wales and moved across the Irish Sea to you know to Ireland to be buried. In fact, well, that's just that's just completely illogical. And, uh, you know, we had to challenge the scientists around that. And, and they were very gracious to say, look, you know, that's information that they didn't have, but uh, they'd been misled by somebody else. You know, so the science was helpful. But, you know, this was a particular investigation that, you know, finding a fingerprint wasn't wasn't possible. You had a plastic bag, you know, that had itself been abandoned and exposed to the weather. You had a baby that was 50% male, 50% female DNA, all of the different things that you would do traditionally were limited in the forensic opportunities. And we had to sort of develop new forensic capability and use different techniques, which um, 
I, I suppose I'm hopeful at some point in the future, um, you know, you gather the evidence now and then maybe in the future, some other scientific measure comes along that, that they can use that and you don't want to lose that evidence that you didn't think to consider at the time. So um, DNA is going to be, I think, a, a crucial one at some point in the future if if, if somebody can, to a to the judicial level, determine which part of each of us is the male and which part is the female DNA, then, you know, that changes the game, I think, a little bit for identifying who baby Carrie was and who mom and dad were. Well, it would sound as if if you were in the States, you'd have these genealogical websites to rely upon, which they have for many cold cases, and they're running the sample through. And then, you know, you, you perhaps find a distant relative, a cousin, and it brings you maybe focuses you in an area maybe that's more useful in the united states which is so vast but you know I mean, we, we we used it here I mean, it's familial dna was used to try and, and, and tie down uh, if you can't get a direct match then who are the possibles uh and, and in a familial sense which family members in the distance would have had a connection or possible connection and i mean there's certain lines of inquiry that that, that allowed us to explore uh, and i think to this day, the police service are still considering their options around that. And when um, I was asked recently, you know, that if not to not to distract us, but if, if the work that the police are having to do on the broader legacy investigations to do with the troubles in Northern Ireland, if they were not part of the police's responsibility, if there was some other way of, of legislation that the British government is considering at the moment takes effect, if the police are not required to do legacy investigations, you know, they have more resources then to revisit Baby Carrie and all of the other non-terrorist investigations that, that were not cleared and were not solved. And, you know, people keep asking me, you know, do I still have hope? But the answer is yes, I do, because, you know, I was a senior investigating officer. I was privileged to hold that role. It was my job to lead the investigation as far and as best as I could. Uh, it's, it's one of those cases that I you know, lie awake at night occasionally and think, what if, what could I have done differently? If someone were to ring me up and say, you know, we have a solution here, we've got a breakthrough, you know, I would be the happiest person because, you know, she she is no more, she's no less deserving of justice than any of the more famous murders that, that we're all familiar with. Uh, she was, in fact, the most innocent victim because she, she didn't choose, you know, the circumstances of her birth and she had absolutely no nobody protecting her when she was literally the most vulnerable. And obviously familiar path for police to go on, but there's always that, you know, 20 years, things change, relationships change, people who may have been feeling in fear may no longer be, people die, you know, the world changes so vastly around an individual within 20 years. And obviously, um, you know, there would always be encouragement for the mother to come forward. Um, it's curious that, you know, in the case of the Kerry babies, the Kerry baby, sorry, baby John, who was also buried. I think actually you attended baby Carrie's funeral um, and other officers uh, working with you. But in the case of baby John and Kerry, despite the passage of time, it's still a very deeply, darkly held secret somewhere in some within some family, within a community. That's right. You know, somebody somewhere um, knows the story. You know, there's there's mom obviously knows what happened. She you know, she may well be a victim in her own right of whether an incestuous relationship, a rape or 
you know, some other matter that has happened. We, we simply don't know. That's why we were very careful. And, and it wasn't it wasn't that we were trying to be coy or being a little bit duplicitous. We genuinely had to keep that eye open that, that we didn't know whether mom was physically able to give birth and to carry out the, the actions that led to the death of this little baby. You know, having been blessed with, with you know, with our own family, you know, I know the, I speak as a male and I obviously can't speak as a, a woman who's given birth, but, you know, the, the physical ordeal of giving birth, and especially if you were doing it on your own, that, that must be really physically demanding on, on a woman's body to then have the physical prowess to get up and to have the line of thought as to what you're going to do to kill a baby using two different techniques to then bury a body without being discovered. I mean, that's, that's, there's just so many questions around, is that even possible to do? Um, it's, it is probably, it is, it is possible, but is it likely? Probably not. So we had to think that might mean there's somebody else other than mom. Uh, and that's why our language is very careful to say, like, you know, mom, we want to speak to you. This is your baby. You know, you may not have wanted her in these circumstances. You may not have wanted her at all. But, you know, if you did, we've given her a name. We have buried her where we buried her. She's still yours to come forward and to claim. And, you know, all we've ever done is sort of make ourselves available. And I've, I've made it clear that even now I'd be prepared to, to meet up with someone who, you know, is, is, is the, baby's, the baby's mother. Um, I get that sense from you that... Um you know, the responsibility you felt, the weight of responsibility on your shoulders, given that baby Carrie had nobody uh, to speak up for her, that you still feel that? I do feel that because, you know, there are, as I've said before, the, the vast majority of victims are identified quickly and they immediately have a family. Even if there's a small family, there's a, uh, you know, there's a mom and dad, a brother, sister, somebody somewhere has lost someone and, and they immediately say, well, you know, that's our family member, we're going to bury them, we're going to cremate them, whatever. You know, this little baby had nothing. So everything we tried to do was through, you know, what is the right thing to do? I mean, I'll give you an example. We we got to the point where we could forensically do no more at that point with her, her little body. And we thought, well, we have to have a funeral. And then you get into the moral question of well, what type of funeral do you have? You know, do you have a Christian funeral? Do you have a Muslim funeral, a Jewish funeral? We don't know, but it's more likely than not that uh, you know this this baby was born in in into a family or with a with a, a mother who was from a broadly Christian family. But then you get into the the, the craziness of Northern Ireland, which you know, which tradition, you know, a Protestant Catholic, which one? And then you get into divisions of which type of Protestantism. You think, oh my goodness, that you know, I, I I didn't set out to be an investigator and have to map my way around the intricacies of of denominations. So. In, in the, the district council where her body was found, um, I was able to, to get the support of the, the majority of, the, of the, the Christian faith. You know, I, had, I think a Methodist, Church of Ireland, uh, I think a Presbyterian and, and, and a Catholic priest all supported the funeral. But, and then they held an interdenominational service, which was just remarkable because the last thing I wanted to do was almost to give the impression and it seems crass even to talk about it. You know, the baby Carrie was a Protestant child because then immediately if she's not, then I've closed the door for the Catholic family to say, well, she must not be ours and, and vice versa. So you had to be really, really careful. I mean, I was heavily criticized by, by members of the Free Presbyterian Church who said, you know, how dare I have an interdenominational service? 
<laughs> you know, I'm just a guy trying to run a service for a dead baby, and now I'm being criticised for you know some some uh, some interdenominational crime. In the uh, the the council, the, the council which has uh, always had a, um, a a clergyman act as the sort of pastor for the year, and it happened that that particular year was the Free Presbyterian Church, and and they refused to take part in the interdenominational service. Uh, they were willing to do the the funeral, the accident tournament. So I ended up with with two services, a public service held in a in a, you know in a public funeral parlor with members of the other churches, and then a private well, it was a public uh, internment that was taken forward by the Free Presbyterian Church. And you think there's nowhere in any investigative manual that I've ever been involved in where that's considered at all. That's just so different, but. My thinking was, look, let's get past this. My objective is don't do anything that closes someone's mind to the fact that this may not be our baby. You know, if they see a Presbyterian clergyman, they might say, well, I can't be our baby. Or if they see a priest, that that must not be our. And you had to creep all of those options open. Um, but what we did want to do was to say, look, every other person who's murdered gets a funeral of some sort that is in accordance with their family's wishes. Why should baby carry be different? But we ended up carrying a large amount of that responsibility because there wasn't a family. And I think we were very, you know, we were we were happy to do so. And it's a really moving part. So we had, you know, one of the one of my senior detectives uh, was was willing to carry her coffin. And um the night before her funeral, there was a really, really powerful image of her tiny little white coffin sitting on the uh on a pedestal within the, the funeral home. And the funeral home turned the lights down except for a spotlight. So you have this blackened uh, funeral home and just a single spotlight on a pure white baby's coffin. And it just said, alone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those images can be even more powerful than words. And, and then we, we deliberately played that to try to say, you know, this this is not our baby. This is your baby. But here she is in a, in a, in a funeral home about to be buried, she's alone. There's always that chance for you, mom, to come forward and, and tell us your story. Um, you know, we, and we deliberately, you know, wanted to evoke that sense of, of loss for mom to try to get her to respond. I guess in general, all those crazy layers that go ahead, go on in Northern Ireland on, on top of everything with the Presbyterians and everybody fighting amongst one another um, sets you up to work anywhere in the world because, uh, yeah, that sort of crazy doesn't happen in too many places. Oh, no, I was, uh, sadly passed on. David Dunseith, who was, um, uh, you know, was famous for the Talkback series at lunchtime on Radio Ulster. It was his programme and it was, you know, almost half an episode was dedicated to, you know, my decision making to have a, a, an interdenominational service. And you think, you know, this is, this is madness. This is a newborn baby. Can we not for one moment put everything to one side? I was, you know, I had a leading member of the, of the Free Christian Clergy just her strips of me because of my decision making. It's just extraordinary. Anyway. But Roy, it's a it's a very dark story, but I think anybody listening to you um, can hear what your motivation is to this day for telling it. And it is that forever hope that this will be solved and that maybe somebody somewhere will come forward. And as you've said, you're still open for anybody to contact you. Anybody wants to speak to you in confidence, you can obviously put them in touch with investigators or you can handle the information sensitively yourself um so just want to thank you for coming on today 
and uh, for telling the story and for, you know, remembering baby Carrie. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. And why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.